Hello Internet, my name is Walter Ciades Fetchuk, and welcome back to a very, very special edition of the Final Cut Podcast presented by the Rough Drafts Podcast Network. I say very special because we are going to do, for the very first time, we're going to talk about two movies on this episode, but... We're only talking about the second movie for just a few short minutes here at the beginning uh, to sort of give our listeners that do like to listen uh, weekly a a little bit of a treat because the movie that we are talking about today, The Last Duel, does discuss sexual assault uh, in a very realistic um, and kind of descriptive way for the time period, which is set in 1300s France. And Chase and I both understand that that is a topic that is very sensitive. It is not something that I think we would normally really try to approach on this podcast, but unfortunately it is incredibly um, interconnected into the story that this movie is telling, and there's really no way that we can talk about the movie with uh, and avoid that subject. Uh, so later in the evening, when I after I watched this, I watched Moana with my partner, and I did want to discuss it with Chase for just a couple of minutes, um, just because I think that if we tried to do an entire podcast about it, it would just read like the Encanto episode, and we really don't want to do a rehashing of that podcast. Um, so with me on the other line, the hey hey to my Moana, the fish hook <laughs> to my Maui, Chase. Wassener, Chase, how are you doing today, buddy? Uh, I'm doing pretty well. I, you know, I appreciate that we're not trying to rehash an episode so soon after its release. As the video games industry has taught us, you have to wait at least five years uh, before you can do the remastered version, um, which, of course, I'm sure our podcast will definitely uh, survive long enough for us to go back and do that. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm glad we're talking about Moana at the top because Moana is a film I had a lot of fun with. And The Last Duel is a very bleak film. So we're going to give you some fun at the top, uh, and then we're going to get into it, because uh, there's a lot to get into. And while I understand your phrasing with Unfortunately, I do think it's a topic that I, I am glad that we are going to talk about here, because I think it's the kind of thing that we still try as a society to just push to the side and pretend isn't as much of a problem as it is. And as we're going to talk about, uh, it's uh, unfortunately a very good uh, interpretation of a lot of things that people unfortunately still deal with when it turns to that side of, uh, you know, masculine culture and um, the sexual assault culture that very much still exists because the world is a nightmare sometimes. So... Let's put that nightmare to the side for a moment and let's talk about Moana because I saw this movie when it came out and I had a very good time with Moana. I enjoyed it more than Encanto, but I'm curious for you since you're kind of experiencing it after Encanto, uh, where you came down on this film. Um, I, I, I enjoyed it more than Encanto too. Uh, I'll, I'll be kind of honest about that, but I think it's a, a much, um, a much more straightforward movie than Encanto. I think Encanto has a lot of nuance about sort of, again, rehashing this phrase, familial obligation, generational uh, trauma, all those sorts of things. 
And Moana is kind of very straightforward. It's like, yeah, there are people who are on this island and this island is starting to die. And she has this call to the ocean and this desire to, to, to traverse it. And this Polynesian myth of, of how the heart was stolen from the, the goddess Thefiti and by the, uh, by the trickster Maui. And that uh, the heart needs to be returned so that the darkness that is coming over the world can, can be repelled. Um, and I just think that's a very straightforward story. I think it's very honest. It's very um, earnest in, in what it's about. And it is a journey of self-discovery for, um, for Moana that it's not hard. You don't lose it in any places. There's no, there's no real, like, tricks or there's no real um, hidden stories hiding underneath it like with Encanto and the, um, the, her uncle living in the walls like there's no surprise like that it's just very straightforward um and it has the rock in it and the rock might be one of the greatest actors to exist in the 20th century 21st <laughs> century so yeah i mean it was fun the music was really catchy um the the song with the crab when he's like all shiny and and that scene is is just brilliantly done and i'm sure terrified um some poor little kids in the theater when it went to the you know the the darker scene and the black you know black like paint on him and everything um but yeah it was just it was a fun date night movie to just sit on the couch and and watch with my partner and just disconnect from everything else and just have a good time and at the end of the day movies are entertainment and Moana was incredibly entertaining and incredibly funny and just really, really good music to it. And again, I feel I feel sort of depressed with myself and angry at myself that I like have shunned animated Disney movies for so long because they put out some really, really good stuff over the last few years. Yeah, you know, I think that when I think about this film and compare it to Encanto, it is the soundtrack that really elevates it to me. How Far I'll Go is an incredible song. I still think it's an incredible song years later. I, I know there are certainly people who will say that it's been overplayed. Uh, but at the same time, I, I think that there's a reason for that. Uh, I think there's some real power behind it. Uh, I think that You're Welcome is a really fun song. As yep. far as like side character songs go, The Rock handles it brilliantly. Um, I love the, again, there's a there's a focus on authenticity throughout a lot of these animated disney projects troy palomalu being involved is a really fun fun pack to ping out at a party um don't know how many uh nfl cornerbacks have appeared in disney films before but it's pretty cool that we got one there i think troy palomalu is a is a decent person please uh don't yell at me on twitter if it turns out that he's done something that i i missed um but i i i do think that while it's more straightforward i think it has a lot of heart and I think that for a film that's trying to do what Moana does, I think that that's the part that matters. It, it is true to the story of self-discovery, of accepting the responsibilities that you have, but learning how to make them your own and to uh, be able to be what you need to be to other people without losing yourself. Uh, I think it's a really, really well done message. I, I think it's one that uh, I think stuck with a lot of people for a lot of good reasons. And I'm glad you enjoyed it. It's definitely one of my favorites of the last decade when it comes to uh, Disney. Uh, and it's certainly of the two films that came out in 2016 from Disney. 
I think Moana has aged significantly better than Zootopia, a film that has not aged well <laughs> at all. So, um, it's funny because I actually have seen Zootopia. I think I watched it back in 2016, and I remember it being like okay. It was. It wasn't. I don't think it was anything that was like spine tingling. It, but it was. It was a decent movie. Um, but no, I. I think at this point Disney has earned enough credit with me recently, um, that. I, I might be ready to go get my heart broken and watch Toy Story 4, I think. Oh, oh, man. I think it might be time that I go and have that that moment that I know so many other people our ages at, you know, had um, and sort of what Disney was really hoping for to, to have that moment. So I might be ready for that. Or I might watch Outward instead. I might I might just watch Outward and just, you know, not not cry at a, at a Disney movie. I mean, uh, I, th- I think you might have announced our next episode because I haven't seen Toy Story 4 yet either. Um, I, I thought this, the movies were done at 3. I was pretty happy with how that trilogy ended. So if you want to do 4, I'm, I will do 4. And we need a fun one after this film. I, I, I think putting a fun one on the calendar probably a good idea. I mean, I can't convince you to watch Doctor Strange and go back to Marvel instead. Uh... <laughs> Okay, there we go. That that's what we'll we'll end the Disney section with. We are going to do Toy Story four in two weeks. So uh, if you if you want to hear what we have to say about that movie, uh, please come back in two weeks. Um, if you don't want to hear what we have to say about the Last Duel, please end the podcast here. We just hit the ten minute mark, so I think we'll get the listen. Uh, we appreciate you guys sticking around. Uh, but if you are ready to listen to us talk about Ridley Scott's The Last Duel, um, welcome to the actual meat of the podcast. And I think meat is kind of poignant because this is this is this is a heavy meal. Uh, this is a heavy movie to watch, uh, not just in terms of the length, the uh, two two and a half hour runtime. Um, but the content of the movie, the the depth to the movie, it is a Ridley Scott production, which means there is a there is a lot to it. There is a lot of storytelling. Uh, it is a period piece. We are set in the uh, the mid to late 1300s in France. Um, historically, I don't know how much the the real history, which I learned after the fact as we were just getting ready to prepare, that this is based on a true story. That this is actually events that happened leading to the last officially government-sanctioned duel in France. Um, And it sort of now changes my opinion on a couple of things. But Chase, let us start at the beginning. That is usually where we like to start. Going into this, what were your first thoughts? What did you know about it? What were kind of your expectations as, as we sat down to watch The Last Duel? Well, honestly, the number one thing I knew about it was that uh, Chris Chance on the Rough Drafts Discord, shout out to Chris Chance, an avid listener of the show, uh, that was one of the requests that he made in the movie channel after it came out. It was one that he really enjoyed, uh, and I hope that uh, he will ultimately be glad that we reviewed it, despite what I think we're going to say about the film, ultimately. I I knew the subject matter. I, I knew that... One of the things that made it so controversial in how people talked about it was the fact that it was centered around a sexual assault, which is always going to alienate some percentage of the population. Uh, I also knew that Ridley Scott went on a tirade uh, in the media at the time uh, saying that the people not going to his film was a sign that culture had basically degraded uh, and took some shots at things like superhero films and whatnot because 
he was very mad that this film didn't do very well from a financial perspective and didn't really get a ton of nominations for awards either. It was one of those films that some people really loved and some people would put it on their their top 10 best films of the year list and some people let it pass them by entirely. But I didn't know where I would end up on it, honestly. It's, it's a topic that is sensitive to me because, unfortunately, I know quite a few people who have been affected by this in some way, shape, or form. So I knew that this was going to be one where I, I needed to prepare myself emotionally for what was going to go down. But everything else I didn't know. And I guess I leave the film understanding both why the people who liked it really liked it and why the people who did not care for it or were not interested in seeing it would come to that conclusion as well. This is a film that is going to really click with some people and bounce off of others entirely. And I guess ultimately at the end of the day, you want art to make you think, to make you feel. And I think this film left me with a lot of thoughts and a lot of feelings. So it exceeded, it succeeded on that bit. Uh, everything else we're going to get into, but uh, it certainly had a lot to, uh, to unpack and to kind of bounce around in the brain in the uh, 24 hours since I have seen this film. I, uh, it's been, it's been two days since I've, I've seen it. We are recording on a Thursday night as per our usual. And I, I watched it on Tuesday during the day. Um, I sat down, I had my lunch. I, you know, pretty much watched it straight through other than, uh, one little pause between, um, spoiler warning parts two and three, uh, to change out a load of laundry. But for, for pretty much the entire movie, it had kind of my undivided attention, uh, unlike something like Black Widow. Yes, I am going to bash that movie every chance I get. And <laughs> the the thing that drew me to it is that it's Ridley Scott. I absolutely love Ridley Scott as a director, and that's sort of where I want to start with. I want to start with him as a director um, because we sort of talk about, we're going to talk about sort of the structure of the movie as a whole before we get to kind of the individual acting performances. And it, Ridley Scott, I think, is a director that you can really kind of categorize into two different types of movies. You are going to have period pieces like this, like Gladiator, like Black Hawk Down, like uh, uh, Robin Hood, Kingdom of Heaven, you know, all these movies that are set in a very particular time frame. House of Gucci, you know, that are set in a very particular time frame that he is telling a somewhat dramatized version of real events that occurred uh, in some fashion. And then you have the other stuff that he's known for, the sci-fi stuff, Alien, Blade Runner, um, um, running through the list, running through Prometheus, the Martian, you know, that, that sort of stuff. And when you tell me that Ridley Scott is making a period piece that is going to be set in medieval Europe, um, I'm like, hell yeah, I'm all there. I love it. Gladiator is one of my favorite movies of all time. I can't wait to see what story he tells. And then you give him a, a acting crew of Matt Damon, Adam Driver, and Ben Affleck. You go, holy crap. What, what, magnum opus is this man going to be telling and you sit down and if you knew nothing about Ridley you know if you didn't know anything about the movie if you sat down within 15 minutes you'd probably say oh is this a Ridley Scott film it feels a lot like Gladiator the the sort of saturation of the colors on the screen the sh the angling of it the 
just the the choreography of the fight scenes that there is this this gratuitous new uh, gratuitous to it um that is very kind of stable uh staple of any of these sort of um sword and spear and bow and arrow type period pieces that Ridley Scott likes to do um and all of that sets up this expectation of something like I said a, a magnus opus a a a a wonderful movie the bar for these types of period pieces when you set it again gladiator black hawk down american gangster they these are very very high bars for a director that has has numerous awards across the board and his name really means something you know when you say great directors of all time spielberg lucas scott Michael Bay, then as you get into more modern, you start to trail into kind of that just action stuff. But when you really think about the, the 80s, 90s, those are kind of the names that start to pop out to you. And learning that information, that this is actually based on a historical uh, historical offense, um, my opinion has changed a little bit. I I don't understand why people love this movie. Uh, I will be very blunt about that. I found it kind of boring. Um, I would say it felt sort of like it was Oscar bait, but it was very, very bad Oscar bait. Um, and I don't think that the way it was written that it was Oscar bait. And ultimately, um, the the thing that has changed my mind now learning that it was actually of a historical, you know, a, a historical event, they are telling a story that actually happened, was that as I left the movie, I felt that the, the sexual assault was only added for shock value. Now, granted, finding out that actually happened has now changed my opinion on it. But I have to say, I was disappointed coming out of this that it did not reach the expectations that something like Gladiator reaches. Yeah, and, you know, the, the gratuitous point is an interesting one to me because that was my initial instinct as well. And I had to sit with that thought for a second because, you know, the inevitable conclusion of that, if you were to take that thought to its final point, would be what are the situations in which depicting rape on camera would not be gratuitous. Because ultimately, we don't want to get to a position where either of us would be arguing, like, there shouldn't be films that discuss rape and that address the realities of it. And, at the same time, there has to be a sensitivity in how it's displayed and, and how it's uh, portrayed and, and handled that is very critical. And I think if you're going to point to something about this being gratuitous you have to ask the question, did we need to see it twice, though? Because the first time is bad enough. And we're good. Like, it comes in chapter two, which is a chapter that is supposed to be from Legree's perspective. And in that scene, it is very clearly rape. And then the second time that it happens, when we're getting it from Marguerite's perspective, it is so much worse. And is there value, I, I think, in depicting the reality of it, the, the harshness through which she fights and struggles and 
is in pain and and clearly suffering throughout while this awful man is trying to convince himself that this is somehow still mutual? Yeah, for sure. I don't know why we needed the first version then. I don't know why we had to circle back around to that scene only to make it harsher and more cruel and more painful. And I I know why. I know how we got here, and it's because this film is trying to pull a Rashomon. And for those of you who don't know Rashomon, and I'll be honest, I have not seen this film. I am aware of it because it has a large cultural impact. Um, It was the first Japanese film to get significant uh, international reception, won a Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival in its time, and it's considered one of the greatest films ever made. And the reason why is because it tells a, a very clear and powerful story across four different perspectives. And each one highlights these kinds of differences between them and their uh, alternating perspectives and and the contradictions therein uh, before circling around to a fourth character that can be kind of a uh, non-biased account to show like what quote-unquote really happened in that one. Uh, And then we get an an epilogue uh, there that kind of... uh, is meant to tie in some thematic elements. So Ridley Scott wanted to do a epic version of that. And I mean epic in terms of scope. I mean he wanted to do a two and a half hour long film compared to Rashomon, which is 88 minutes. And two and a half hours gives you enough time to hit all of the story beats that he chose to hit three times. And so... If you're going to tell the story from all these different perspectives, you can't skip a bit that that character would have experienced, which is fair enough from a structural perspective. However, this begs the question of whether this structure was the best way to tell this story. And I have a really hard time having seen how all of it came together and how the, how the film's modern understanding of the topic colors so much about how it is painted across the board. Kind of feels like we should have just had Marguerite's story, right? Like we could have just had a film from Marguerite's perspective, and instead of having to rush through all of the beats that this film wants to cover, we could have sat with characters and had like moments to breathe and digest and absorb what was happening and allow the party most wronged in all of this to get the most time to, um, to, to explore, I guess. And we can't do that because of the structural choice. So it's, it's a tough one, man. It's uh, it's tough not to look at this film and, and look at the way in which that was framed and think, yeah, that was the best way they could have done that. <laughs> I just, I, I don't know. It's tough. It's really tough. So to, to give just sort of a quick synopsis uh, of what's going on here, because we've, we've talked about, you know, different characters, and we've talked about there's multiple chapters to, to this film. Uh, essentially what has happened here is we have a, a dispute between uh, the knight Jean de Carouge 
and a squire, Jacques Legree. Now, part of it is that uh, the Carouge and Legree grew up together. They were both squires together. And uh, the Carouge marries this woman, Marguerite, uh, whose father was uh, a traitor to the French crown, but then recanted and, you know, apologized and was able to keep his lands and, and everything. Um, and uh, sort of uh, is in his version of tellings because they tell it from three different perspectives. The first chapter is the, the uh, views of things by Sir Jean de Carouche, uh, obviously making himself out to be a very noble uh, warrior, very quiet, very soft-spoken, um, but also a very um, defiant sort of man. Um, the second chapter, which is told from the uh, the view of Jacques Legree, uh, Matt Damon plays uh, de Carouche, Legree is played by Adam Driver, and he is that of sort of the philosopher knight, the educated uh, warrior. He is more uh, more worried about the uh, the accounting of the uh, of the uh, count uh, Pierre de Elisson, uh, played by Ben Affleck, and getting his affairs into order. And he is rewarded by Pierre for fixing his estate, but he, upon meeting Marguerite. Uh, is infatuated and falls deeply in love with her and then rapes her. And then the third part of the story is then told from Marguerite, who uh, sort of confirmed what I had uh, determined by the end of these two, uh, these first two parts, is that um, neither of these men are very good individuals, even though the Carouge makes himself out to be this very noble knight and fighter and everything. Um, I, just something felt off something felt wrong and that's sort of the the legree part of it confirmed to me that we're dealing with unreliable excuse me unreliable narrators and the third part of it then shows the true colors of the carouge of not being this loving doting husband and and noble man um his first reaction after marguerite uh, admits to him and, and tells him that she was raped by Legree is to grab her by the throat and shake her, yelling at her, are you telling me the truth? And then when he finally realizes he's like killing her and releases and, and goes, okay, I believe you, then proceeds to force her to have sex with him because Legree can't be the last man to have known her. Uh, yeah. Like we said earlier, this is, it, it's pretty disgusting, honestly. Um, and it really, I would say now after the fact, learning that this was a true event, um, it really does show the sort of standing of where women were in the 1300s in France, which is, uh, as at one point, a, um, a, uh, a priest that is, um, helping Legree with his defense basically says, well, it's not a crime against the woman. The woman has no rights. It's a crime against the man because you harmed his property. Um, I, 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 I just, I shuddered at that because I understand the time period. That's what we're talking about, but it just, there was something so undeniably gross about that. Um, and we talk about that Scott decided he wanted to create this epic and tell this tale from the three parts. And as we stated, you know, the first part, uh, the Carouge, it's what you would expect a, a noble, a good guy would kind of how he would tell the story, his reaction to, to finding out this information. He does say, are you telling the truth? But it is in a very quiet and, and subdued sort of way and that he is concerned and he uh, feels bad, uh, that he feels terrible that 
he had left the house and left Marguerite on her own and wasn't there to protect her. And I don't have a lot wrong with the first chapter. I think the first chapter is is reasonable. I think it's a decent telling. It's kind of afterwards when you decide to learn that this is the narrative way that Ridley is trying to tell the story. You sort of understand everything. You understand Carouge's points and, and you go, okay, yeah, that's pretty reasonable. And then you get into part two. And I feel terrible for Adam Driver that he has just been typecasted as, no, you're going to be the pretty slime ball that mm-hmm. has no problem with the ladies and is going to be a piece of shit. And that's going to be your career for the rest of your life. Uh, because goddamn, does he play an excellent piece of shit? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he sure does. Um, I mean, it's, it's so tough uh, when talking about that second part because the problem that this film has, and it's a problem that I have a deep amount of empathy for the script writers uh, for, because I don't know how you do this with the format that you have, is that this film never, for any moment, wants you to think that what happened was okay, was consensual, was remotely acceptable. Which I think most people, I would hope everyone listening to this podcast, would be able to recognize uh, casting rape as bad is a good call. I don't think we need films to be rape apologists in any amount of their telling. I'm sure someone out there has done uh, a way of telling that story and, and, and stripping it apart and, and deconstructing certain things. I, I can't imagine wanting to go watch that film, even if it was done brilliantly. And this film doesn't want to do that. It does. Ha- it has no interest in redeeming Jacques Legree or even allowing Legree to have, for a moment, any amount of sympathy from the audience. Um, he's very clearly a womanizer an asshole who turns the other way on a lot of sketchy things in order to move ahead and what he does is so immediately presented as deceptive and wrong even if it does color things as less bad than the version we finally get in part three but the problem with that and i say problem in a purely structural sense, because I do not think it is a problem that Ridley Scott understands, and and the people who wrote this script understand, that you should not make that scene morally ambiguous for a lot of, I I would hope, obvious reasons. But the problem is that it's meant to be from Legree's perspective. This is Legree's version of the truth. This is his story. And as we see at the very end, in his version of events, he did nothing wrong. He dies believing that he in no way, shape, or form wronged this woman. He never accepts any amount of culpability, denies it quite extensively, repeatedly, no matter what. Even when there is nothing to gain from having done so. So when you see the film portray the scene as him so clearly in the wrong, with no room for moral ambiguity as to what he did being even remotely okay, which again, 
Not a thing I want to complain about, per se. But it doesn't feel authentic to how Legree sees the situation. None of Legree's chapter really feels like it is designed to paint himself in the best light possible, the way that the Jean de Carouge section is very much intended to paint Sir Jean in the best light possible. So when Marguerite's chapter come up, we get an uh, and kind of undoing an unraveling of the lies that Sir Jean tells himself, and we get confirmation that Legree is just as awful as we already believed him to be. But one of those things is way more powerful from a narrative perspective than the other. There's nothing to be gained from reaffirming that which the audience already knows other than the shock value of it. So what do you do, right? You can't go back and make Legree less terrible. That seems like a bad move. But you can't have that chapter exist without at least trying to portray how he would view himself. And so what you get is a a bit of a mess. The second act in this film, I would argue, just straight up doesn't work. Because the film doesn't have a way to compromise these two things that it's trying to do. And if that's the case, which I, again, nothing but empathy for the people who are going to try to to write their way through that uh, just series of traps, you know, like just like a, a full-on Indiana Jones dungeon of, of uh, clear traps that they could have fallen onto that would have absolutely hindered what they were doing in other ways. I have to ask why we're doing it at all, other than because Rashomon did and Ridley Scott wants to make his Rashomon with this film. Well, that yeah, that's that's entirely the point, is that you have to have the second act for the narrative device, the the three narrators, the three unreliable narrators, to to do the film. You can't just tell the story from, from Jean de Carouge's point and from Marguerite's point. You have to also tell Jacques Legree's point. And it, it is incredible that they do have this opportunity to show Legree in a better light, but it's that he himself views that he is an asshole. Like, he is like, yeah, I'm 100% this bad of a guy, but the only time they try to, like, redeem him and show that he's not a bad guy is they change the very beginning, the very first fight scene, to Legree saving uh, the Carouge. And that's, like, the only time that he's at all kind of, like, redeeming or anything. Instead, it's, I'm an asshole, I'm an asshole. I can clean up your books. Oh, I got rewarded because I cleaned up your books, but in the process, I harmed my friend. I'm an asshole. I'm a, I'm a sycophant. I'm a sexual deviant. I'm an alcoholic. I speak Latin. I'm an asshole. Oh, me and my friend are... Uh, I'm going to steal my friend's job that he's supposed to inherit, but, you know, he sued us, so he can't take that job. I'll take that job instead. We're going to bury the hatchet, but the moment I see his wife and learn anything that she's interesting and she can read, 
then I'm going to covet her to the point where I'm going to delude myself into thinking that she is in love with me and I am so in love with her that I can't help myself and I'm going to go perform this big romantic gesture and profess my love and, and, and whisk her away from this, from this uh, life of Pollard and this ogre, this d dragon that's protecting her and locking her away in the dungeon, and then I'm going to rape her, but I'm going to try and say it wasn't rape because first... Well, you know, ladies at this time, they have to protest. Like, she was just, she was saying no, quote unquote, but you know what she really meant. Mm -hmm. And then saying, well, no, it couldn't have been rape because I loved her. And love is, is this pure thing. And like, and she obviously loves me back too. And I, I love her. I love her. I love her. As if that makes it okay. And you're 100% right. It doesn't work. Because from... The moment he comes by as a tax collector in, in the Karuja's version of things, you go, this is the bad guy, he's a prick, he's evil, and what evil thing does he do to make De Karuja actually duel him? And it's like, oh, he's going to rape his wife, and he's going to think that that's okay. And it's it's not. And that's, that's, that's where we get to. We get to him trying to defend himself to, to this priest that is acting as his counsel, and then to the, the court of the king of France as he accepts the Carouge's challenge uh, to the duel to the death that the truth shall come out before the eyes of God, you know, before God, and he shall determine via the winner who is telling the truth. I, I, and do, then we, I think there's one point I, I, I would like to just mildly uh, contend with. Which is, I think that I don't know that Jacques ever sees himself the way that Jacques' chapter says that he sees the event. Because if you if you look at Adam Driver's acting, the words that he is saying, the emotions he is putting behind his performance, I don't think that Jacques believes what we are told Jacques believe, like interpreted as his own events. Because the film doesn't want to go there. The film doesn't want to get that dirty with it and so we can't truly get his perspective it is a it is a, a framing device that not just doesn't work but can't work reasonable i i do think that's reasonable because they could have tried to make him look much much better he they could have showed a scene where he was trying to refuse the captainship of of the fort and insist that it goes to de carouge and they very easily could have just made pierre who's played by ben affleck the bad guy and be like no i'm the one who says who's the count who's the the captain and if i don't pick you fine i'll pick somebody else and then have you know, have Legree like begrudgingly accept. They could have done those things, but they don't. They just treat him as an asshole the entire time. And like you said, it's an oblivious asshole. He doesn't really realize he's being an asshole, but he is. He's just straight up being an asshole. And then we come to the third part. We come to Marguerite's telling. And I think it is very poignant that they do these cue cards before both points, you know, parts. And it's the truth according to Jean de Carouge, the truth according to Jacques Legree. The truth according to Marguerite de Carouge, and then as the title card fades, the truth sits there for a moment, and then it fades. And then we learn the truth about the events, about how de Carouge is not really this noble good guy that he portrays himself out to be. He's actually 
uh, he's only doing what he's doing because he's just trying to get lands and money uh, from the Cruz's uh, father, who, as we said earlier, was sort of disgraced by uh, siding with the English during one of the wars that were happening prior. Um, he does not treat Marguerite very well. He goes off to, to fight um, because... He needs money, but in reality, he probably just doesn't want to be home. They are having trouble conceiving, and he makes multiple mentions about how, well, I didn't have this problem with my first wife. And and then we get, you know, to the moment of her, her you know, stating what happened, the, the rape to him. And he then, you know, yells at her, chokes her out, and then has to have sex with her because he can't let Legree be the last man that she slept with. Oh, and then to make matters worse, as he then escalates this to, well, I'm going to challenge Legree to a duel, and if I die, I die, and, you know, whatever, and not tell Marguerite the consequences, where if De Carouge loses the duel, and Jacques Legree is proven to be innocent in the eyes of God because of the outcome of the duel, Marguerite must be punished because she has created a false claim against a man. And she will be shackled with an iron collar. She will be stripped, paraded through the streets to where she will be lashed to a wooden stake and burned at it. All while she's finding this out, she is now pregnant. She uh, deals with the consequences of being brought before the court and being examined by the clergy and whatever other lawmen that they do this that think, oh, well, at this time, you could only get pregnant if you had a, had a completion, if you had the little death, an orgasm. That's the only way you could get pregnant. So yeah. are you covering for another lover? Are you, are you, is it the fact that actually you did love Legree? You found him handsome, didn't you? And all while she is pregnant, she is going through all of this. And then she finds out while on the stand, while, you know, on trial, hey, if you lose this case, if your husband loses a duel, you also die and you will now widow your child. Which then leads on to these things where basically she's like, well, if I had known, like, I wish I could take it all back purely because I'm pregnant and I'm a mother. And all of these things which lead to this conclusion that says if you're a rape victim, don't actually say anything. The moral that this movie tries to teach at the very end of it is almost as disgusting as the act of the rape itself. And to me, that's the biggest flaw that I have with the movie, is that the conclusion that it comes to is just horrendous. Well, I guess this is where you and I are going to have our, our first big departure of uh, our opinion on this film. Um, because this was the like the part of the film that rang the truest to me. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Uh, I, I, unfortunately, uh, have several people more people than i would like who i am close to who have had experience with sexual assault who, who have who have suffered uh in a variety of different ways I'm, I'm being very vague about that for what i think are very understandable reasons but i gotta tell you man watching that third act was uh, a highlight reel of all of the things that i knew those people went through um, from the constant questioning and having to prove yourself in all these things and having any little detail nitpicked to death 
Um, because if you dared to say that this person was attractive once, that suddenly means that your consent has been granted forever. That comes up a whole bunch. Uh, the, the point about, oh, well, if you didn't complete, then you wouldn't get pregnant. We had a Republican congressman within the last decade say that your body has a way of shutting pregnancy down if you were raped. Like, that shit is happening now. And the way that public opinion handles the stories of women who come out uh, as having been victims of sexual assault, the amount of harassment that these people get, and the very rare, if ever, getting any amount of justice for it, there's a reason that most rapes go entirely unreported. And it's because not, very rarely do people in that situation believe that anyone is going to do anything about it. Rapes are one of the worst processed crimes in the United States. I'm going to speak about the states because that's the country that I'm in. I'm sure there are many countries with problems with sexual assault victims. But if you look at the clearance rate for crimes in the United States, rape is towards the very bottom. The amount of rape kits that go completely unprocessed because no one even cares to actually look into it, way too high, scarily high. And the numbers that you're taught when you go to college and you have like any amount of sexual assault training are one in four women experience something like this in their lifetime. Sometimes you'll hear as high as one in three. Sometimes you'll hear as low as one in five. The fact that one in five is the low end is a fucking problem. But society does not reward you for telling the truth in any way, shape, or form. You get dragged on social media. You get torn apart by the people who are supposed to have your back. The, the friend, Marguerite's friend, completely betraying her, having told this story. Heartbreaking. Uh, brutal. And unfortunately, again, rang true to me from the experiences that I have witnessed and, and seen people I care about go through. We are still, in 2022 terrible about this. We do not give justice to these people. And even, even on the chances that we actually believe them, it is always in terms of how other people feel about it. The, the, the husband making it about himself and saying that he was the one who was wronged and he needs to have sex with her to reclaim some sort of masculinity thing, that very much still a thing to this day. Uh, this idea of uh, not allowing yourself to be seen as weak, which implies that you believe that the rapist's actions portray them as strong, that's a thing that's very much built into a lot of the patriarchal bullshit that we have around this kind of conversation. We barely learned a thing. The, you could tell this story in 2022 and you wouldn't even have to change very much. You'd change the church to politicians who are uh, opportunizing. You'd change the crowds to social media and you would, you might be done, honestly. You might be done with the changes you would make for the story to feel real. And that sucks, man. That, more than anything, that was the thing I left this film with is this feeling of like, Man, we haven't learned a thing, have we? We're still, even in our best case scenario, putting women as the object for other people to fight over. And whether or not we believe what happened to them uh, barely involves them at all. Uh, sure sucks. It's, it's a concern. I, I don't dispute any of that. 
and I don't want my my interpretation of the ending to to do anything like that. I 100% agree with you coming out of the end. It was like, yep, this is how we still treat women today. Um, you know, I, I don't want to get into politics, but right now we're having this discussion here, you know, the, the 14th of July about uh, a, a victim in the state of Ohio that then had to travel to Indiana uh, to have a, an abortion performed because... They were raped, and we're, we're litigating this. We're having an argument about it. Attorney generals in both states are calling for the doctor's head, and it's not illegal in Indiana, which is why they went to Indiana, and all of those things. A 10-year-old, uh, by the way. I, ten, I, 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 ten. I don't, 10 years old. Holy shit. Ten. We're still doing this. We're still doing this. And I don't dispute any of that. I don't dispute the, the closeness to how these hit cases are handled nowadays. Any, anything, any of that. I don't dispute it. It's it's always about the the man. It's always about the boy. It's always about that. My my problem with it. And I even thought to myself coming out of it, like, man, this would be a really poignant story to tell if the movie came out two weeks ago. Like, what timing would that have been to be telling this story when Roe v. Wade had just has just been overturned and that women's rights are under attack? How, how poignant is that? My problem is that the conclusion to that feels wrong in a way to me personally that we are coming to that conclusion where the victim blatantly says i should have kept my mouth shut and perhaps that's because i've never had to be in that situation perhaps it's that i don't know uh very many people that have been uh, open with me about being in that situation, that have trusted to talk to me about that situation um, in any detail. Um, so I can't under I can't speak to what what someone who has gone through that would say. But to me, as a viewer watching that, I look at it as a missed opportunity. That the final sort of answer to to this is, I wish I kept my mouth shut. Because in the end, I had a child, which is that, you know, something that I always wanted. And I got to be a very successful mother. And they do. They do the little epilogue thing that she lived for 30 years on the, on the, um, the de Carouge estate. And, you know, had a very happy life. And Jean died after like five or six years or whatever. And had some battle or whatever. The but one good like, thing to come out of the Crusades is that de Carouge yeah, didn't yes, come yes, back. Yes, he died in the, he died in the Crusades. <laughs> yes, he died in the Crusades. Um... But it just felt hollow and it felt wrong to me that that was the final verdict on it was that uh, even, you know, spoiler alert, the Carouge wins. He kills the Gris in a in a fantastic fight scene. That duel is is Ridley Scott at his best. Mm -hmm. Like that is a fantastically choreographed duel. It is it is violent. It is emotional. It feels like life and death between these two men that they truly despise each other with every fiber of their being and they are they are really fighting to their last breath and to the death so that they are believed but then after de Carouge wins he has to be reminded like hey go get your wife that's you know been locked in irons on top of a tower watching over this go get your wife and then when they parade out of the arena he is he is both arms out. Are you not entertained? And aren't I such a great knight? Aren't I such a great 
fighter, you know, basking in the jubilation of all of the, the peasants and the, the townspeople that are there to watch them. And Marguerite is sitting there in the back, just riding on another horse, her shoulders kind of slumped forward, watching all of this. And she wasn't even the main character in her own story. In her own story, she was essentially just a plot device, which, again, just feels wrong. That's the part where this film fails the most. Um, and I, it, it comes back, I, I, I circle it back around to the structure and the structural choice of how to tell this story. If you are going to make a movie where the ultimate lesson is that people don't listen to women enough, that their stories are not treated with the level of seriousness and, and sincerity and trust in an experience that comes up way too often. Why wasn't this film Marguerite's story? Why didn't we just get a film from Marguerite's perspective in which we got to see from start to finish with more time to really sit with some of this stuff and to see the emotional back and forth that she must have dealt with and, and all of these different relationships really explored? Why did we need to have those other perspectives? Why was it so important to what the film was trying to do that we get 45 minutes of Sir Jean justifying his own actions? Why do we have 45 minutes of Jacques Legree saying one thing while depicting another even in his own head if you are to believe the film? Again, I, I think that dissonance, um, I, I, I think that says much more about what the film doesn't want to do than what Jacques believes about himself. But you didn't need to do that. You could have just told Marguerite's story. And that would have been a powerful film, right? There's so much about her story that matters. And the th last third of this film, as a result, is by far the best part of this film. And I, I imagine if people really like this film, it's because that bit re resonated, right? It is powerful. It is meaningful. It matters. So why is that not the fucking film? And... You know, I could get into like some some structural things that get lost here. I would say the pacing of this film is very messy because in order to hit all of the points that the story wants to hit, you have to rapid fire through those 45 minutes. It feels longer than it is, and it's already a long film because it has so much ground that it wants to cover because it wants to hit all of these individual story points from these three perspectives so you can't ever sit with anything. There's never a moment to let it breathe and digest and have it matter because we're too busy focused on this really special framing device. That's the part that matters, I, I guess. And that's the big miss for me. It, it's, in my opinion, a, a huge misstep because ultimately I didn't give a shit about Legree's perspective. I barely cared about Sir Jean's perspective once we got to what Marguerite had to say. She's by far the most interesting character involved. She's the one who matters. She's the one who, by the film's own mission, is the one who possesses the truth. I don't see the benefit, having had the hindsight of having watched the whole film now. I don't know what it adds to see the perspective of these men lying to themselves or saying certain things while portraying others because it's messy as hell. I don't get it. I, we, you could have had this film be 100 minutes rather than 150 minutes 
and it could have been really focused on the story that matters. The story that the film says matters. And we didn't do it. Because I guess, ultimately, that wouldn't have been as clever for Ridley Scott. He wouldn't be able to say that he made his Rashomon if he did it from just one perspective. It would just be another period piece. And that didn't seem to be enough for the people working on this film. And I gotta tell you, that doesn't feel great, given the, the, the lesson of the story and everything that Marguerite went through. To say that that would not have been enough to carry the film on its own, that a film purely from her perspective would not have been able to hit as hard as what they did here, I reject that. I reject that wholeheartedly. Um, and it's such a fucking bummer that this film wanted to be smart and wanted to be clever and wanted to be different more than it wanted to get it right. That's the thing I was ultimately left with, is just this feeling that a much better film was discarded because the people involved didn't think that would be enough. And I don't love that, given the themes of this film. I don't, that doesn't sit right with me. Marguerite's story is very compelling. It is, it is. I agree with you that just, just telling Marguerite's story would be enough. Um, I don't know if they could have that same ending, though. I don't know if they could come to that same conclusion of her saying, I wish I'd never, I wish I never told the truth of the, the argument that she has with, with Jean that, you know, if you, if you fight and I die, we're leaving our child an orphan. The scene where she is holding the, the son, um, uh, uh, you know, in, in his nursery afterwards and he comes in, he's like, you know, are, are you prepared or whatever? And she's like, I, I would never give up a mother's love, you know, being able to be a mother. It, I never would have said anything if I, if I had known this feeling, the, the speech that um, the Caruja's mother has where, when they're um, with Margarita being like, well, I was raped. Do you think you're any better than the peasants? that get raped during war. Like you just stand up and you live your life. And, and there is something very poignant in that scene. Marguerite goes and what, a, and what a price she paid for something so trivial. That is, I think, exceptionally powerful, but then you do this complete, you know, complete 180, you know, 10, 15 minutes later into the film when she realizes that the, there are consequences to her actions. If it is determined that she quote unquote lied and the second she's faced with the consequences of her action, she completely backs out. And again, I, it just feels, it leaves a very bitter taste in my mouth. And perhaps it's just that that is the reality. Perhaps that is just the reality that so many victims that do come forward, uh, regret coming forward or that just so many victims never come forward because they don't want to deal with the consequences of, of telling the truth. And that is incredibly sad that so many people decide to stay quiet. And you don't need the first two acts to do any of that. None no. of those, all of those beats are there in the third act. And they're the best parts of the film. They're the most powerful parts of the film. They're the parts of the film that have sat with me. Um, I don't know in hindsight what was added by not making that the focal point. And how many more moments like that could we have had? How much more 
nuance from her perspective would have been worth exploring. It, it's a shame that we'll never get to see that version of the film, I guess. Uh, I will say it, it is a, it is a Ridley Scott film. Um, not to not to go off, but I think we could ping pong on on that mm-hmm. on the plot all day. We could just keep going and, and talking about what a disappointment it is that they make the plot decisions that they do, and they don't just tell the the story from Marguerite's perspective. But it is a Ridley Scott film. It is beautifully shot. It is it as I said earlier. It his his saturation of colors, the uh, choreography of the fight scenes are incredibly well done. Um, I think that the acting performances that we get from from Damon Driver, Affleck, and uh, Jodie Cormier playing Marguerite are are superb. We barely talked about Ben Affleck, but that's because he is he is kind of a secondary character that um, is woven into the story of sort of Legree's rise to prominence. That he is the count that sort of is constantly showering Legree and is constantly uh, whoring it up with him, uh, yes. to to lack of a better word, is constantly drinking with him, is constantly encouraging these terrible destructive behaviors and even at a point is like willing to completely cover up what happened is like yeah like i'm the judge i'll just say it didn't happen and boom we're done uh to which jean is more clever than that and he's already gone directly to the king to say i want to do this duel screw what pierre de alisson says um i think that with what they were given it is incredibly well acted Mm-hmm. Um, as I said before, it is a shame that Adam Driver has now just been typecasted as the douchebag, because um, I do think he is an incredibly talented actor, but he just has such a fucking punchable face. Um, he does a great do, job. Do you have anything to say about the actors? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it is, across the board, I think, some really strong performances. Um, taking aside my feelings about the structure... What they did as part of those acting performances is really quite hard. Portraying the same scenes from these different perspectives and the nuances in how the characterization shifts based on those perspectives and making each of those scenes feel different from the acting performances alone is quite hard. It is a very difficult thing to get right. Uh, And Matt Damon, Adam Driver, Jodie Comer... The three of them deserve so much credit for how well they navigate that. It is quite a challenge, and it may not be as obvious to people who are not as experienced with the, like, I guess, intricacies of acting, like like what it must have been like on set to do all of these different versions and to perfectly capture the differences that need to be captured in order to get it right. It's very, it's very hard. It, it takes real skill to get it right. And I think all three of them uh, did a really great job. And yeah, Ben Affleck is, is a, a very good asshole. Uh, he's very good at the whole, um, you know, womanizing. I'm going to treat my wife terribly um, because I am all about drinking and having fun. And I don't really care about... Uh, the ruling part of this whole being a ruler thing. Adam Driver's character can do that for me. Um, ben Affleck does a very good job with that. I would say across the board, the acting in this film is quite good. The cinematography in this film is quite good. Um, as you said, it's very much a Ridley Scott film, and Ridley Scott is good at this. Um, it is a film 
that I give a lot of credit to. And I, I, when I say like I understand why people like it, that's a big part as to why. I, like if you, if you watch this film and you say, well, I think the acting performances were great. I think the cinematography is well done. I think that the story structure was interesting or at least different from what I typically experience as a film goer. And I think that the third act is incredibly powerful. I, I'm not going to argue with any of those points. I, I don't think anyone who feels that way is wrong for feeling that way. And you look at the Rotten Tomatoes and it's uh, critics loved it. Um, audiences really enjoyed it, despite the fact that the audience wasn't as large as Ridley Scott would have liked it to be. This film lost a lot of money. Um, I, my problems persist and maybe in fact are intensified because of what this film could have been. Um, and it's only possible for me to wish for a better version of this story because I think that the people who worked on this were capable of a better version of this story. Um, and, and, it's, and it's because I think they did a great job with what they were given. And I think they would have done a great job if they had been given something a little bit different. And I think the themes would have come together a little bit better that way. And the pacing would have been a little bit better that way because it's just trying to cover too much ground. There's too much that it wants to do between sections uh, to have the pacing that you would want for this. Um, but yeah, from, from a cast perspective, from, from all of the detail work that you need, some really great stuff. No, no, no criticism there. I would entirely agree with you, and my issues with the film don't have anything really to do with with the acting or the cinematography or uh, or you know Ridley Scott as a director or anything like that. My my issues with the film just sort of come down to, um, as you said, the the decision to tell three different versions of the story instead of one really good version of Marguerite's story, and that the ending just it leaves such a such a bitter taste in my mouth that I, I have problems. I just had so many problems afterwards and it didn't make me think it just sort of made me, it made me, it made me sad and upset that that's the, the moral that the movie wants you to end with. A excellent job by, by the cast and crew. They did a wonderful job. I think it is a good movie. Um, I, I put it to my partner when, when I described it afterwards because she doesn't watch all the movies I watch. And I said, you know what? It's not, it's not a great movie. It's not a bad movie either. It, it's somewhere in the middle because technically it's good. Ending and plot wise is, is a little bit messy. Uh, but Chase, that's a good summary. But as we are want to do here on the podcast, what's your final score? I have never had a harder time putting a number on a film in my entire life. I, I will be straight up honest with those of you at home. I could give five different numbers for this film and none of them would feel quite right. I am going to settle with a seven out of 10 because I think the stuff about this film that works, works really, really well. And while it is certainly a bitter and cold ending, I think it is one that sadly still rings very true to the experiences of way too many people that perhaps we should do a much better job of listening to. I don't know, worth considering, given uh, maybe do things a little bit different than the last. 
thousand, two thousand, however many years, you know. But uh, I, I, I just the flaws of it can't get it more than that, and anything less. I think ultimately I would feel like I was lying because I was captivated by the last third of this film. I I think there's a lot that this film covers that I think is really important to cover. And for, for those of you who really like this film and think I was being harsh, it is only because the stuff that works about this film really hit home with me. And it just feels like there was maybe an opportunity um but you know we got this is the film we got and i think that film i'm giving it a seven out of ten um lots to like lots to wish was better you you say seven out of ten and i know i said it was it was good it wasn't great it wasn't bad but i'm gonna give this a a six out of ten uh, I'm sorry, five and a half out of ten. Five and a half out of ten. That that was the first number that came in, and then you said seven. I was like, ah, oh, I should bump it up and up, but no, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna stick to my guns. It's a five and a half out of ten. Um, I expect better from Ridley Scott, honestly. Um, I came into this expecting, uh, expecting Gladiator. In all honesty, with that cast, I expected Gladiator. Um, I didn't get Robin Hood. I didn't even get Kingdom of Heaven. Um, which I think is an underrated movie, but it's not a great movie. Um, I was very disappointed. Uh, like I said, technically across the board, great acting, great cinematography. The music is on point. The sound design, all of, all of the technical aspects are there. Um, the second part feels useless other than the fact that it has to be there because of the plot device. And the ending just ruined it for me. It just absolutely ruined that that is what you want the moral of this story to be. And I I can't let it go. I haven't been able to let it go for two days. Even learning that, you know, the the, the rape of Marguerite is history. That is a that is history. That is reality. That is what happened. Um hasn't changed it. It's that 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 final moment, that final thought that they want you leaving the theater with or getting off your couch from. I can't come to terms with it and I can't agree with it. And I can't accept that that is really what the, what Ridley Scott, what the actors, what they wanted you to come, come away with. So uh, it's a five and a half out of 10. I might've given it a six, but that facial hair on Matt Damon was fucking awful. <laughs> that, was, that was atrocious. That little fucking goat beard was just distracting every time he was on stage. It was on, on on the screen, not stage. This isn't stage. It could have been a play. He could have made this. This could have been a three-part drama at some, like, black box theater in local capital city near you. Like, he could have done that. But no, instead we got this movie that didn't meet my expectations. And you know what? I'm not going to sugarcoat it. But Chase, that that was a podcast. That was a heavy podcast. That was That was, that was a little rough. Yeah. Uh, I think to get through content wise. And if you did stick through, through it with us, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I know kind of going into the sort of after episode spiel about social media does feel a little bit weird, uh, but Chase, where can the good folks at home find you on the interweb? 
See, we listened to both Knowledge Fight and I listened to, to Behind the Bastards. So segueing into uh, pluggables after uh, Dark Subject Matters, I think, comes more naturally uh, to me. Uh, you can find me at Chase Wassenaar on Twitter. You can follow the podcast at Rough Drafts Pod. Uh, you can donate to abortion funds. Uh, those of you stateside who uh, are are thinking like, hey, this all sounds awful and uh, things aren't going very well on that front. Uh, would love that far more than a subscription for anything. Uh, that would be uh, that would mean the world to me. So I'm going to plug that, I guess, at the end here. And next time we're going to talk about some toys. So I think odds are very good that the next episode will be a lot more fun. So I uh, hope you'll stick around for that. And uh, if nothing else, uh, you've got the gaming podcast, Steam Cleaners, that we do on all the weeks that we're not doing this. So uh, a week from now, we'll be talking about two games we haven't talked about before. Uh, and hopefully uh, that'll be fun for y'all as well. Absolutely. Uh, you guys can find me at C80s underscore LOL. And yeah, the goods and services provided uh, to this podcast are provided by FedCheck Studios, located in lovely Rochester, New York, one of the recording locations of the Rough Drafts Podcast Network. Um, but yeah, come back in two weeks. I swear we're not going to talk about something depressing. Uh, we're just going to be talking about growing up and giving your toys to your younger cousin, I think it is, and then her losing those toys. Or donating them. I don't really know the plot of Toy Story 4, but we're going to watch it. I'm probably going to admit that I cried to it. And we'll see you in two weeks. Goodbye, Internet.